You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. An item from the Santa Cruz Sentinel, published in the summer of 1925. E.J. Lear said he was driving near the beach when he spotted an odd sight out past the breakers. A dozen or more sea lions were worked into a lather, and Lear thought it seemed that they were attacking something. A big fish, maybe, he thought. But in the course of watching the fray, the lion's target breached several times, and Lear amended his theory. Not a fish, but some sort of sea monster. He estimated its length at 30 feet. E.J. Lear was a family man, well enough respected in the community. Still, there were reasons to doubt his account, even if not many did. The sight line and viewing distance were difficult to square, for one. Lear's inexpertise on marine matters. But mainly, you may have questioned the timing. Why did it take him those several weeks to come forward with his tale? Why hadn't he told anyone about the monster before the newspapers? before the bar gossip, before the scientists. In short, why had he only remembered spotting the monster alive once it had already been found dead? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Here Be Dragons. Stories of sea creatures in Monterey Bay go back probably as far as people have been sailing it. For most of human history, sea monsters were taken as a given, not vaguely believed in or conjectured about, but a matter of obvious, uncontroversial fact. There's no clear, single genesis for these beliefs. They pop up many times around many peoples in various ways and for various reasons. But the blueprint for a big bulk of the stories go back to Ugarit, a Bronze Age coastal port city in what is now northern Syria. The Ugarit's patron god, Bahal Hadad fought and defeated first a giant whale god called Yam, and then a seven-headed serpent called Lotan. Ugarit was destroyed by the mysterious Sea Peoples around 1200 BC. Uh, if you want to pause and Google Sea Peoples, be warned, you will lose a few hours down that hole. But the basic framework of Bahal Hadad's legend managed to live on, imprinting itself all over the region and then the world. Before Bahal Hadad, you have the Sumerian god Ninurta, who also defeated a seven-headed dragon. After Bahal Hadad, you have the Mesopotamian Marduk, who defeated the sea serpent Tiamat. The Canaanites take the legend almost directly from Ugarit. They too called the serpent Lotan and the hero Hadad. In early Vedic religion of now northern India, you get the ocean-enveloping serpent Virtra, 
who was killed by Indra. In Norse mythology, you have Thor slaying Jormungand. And that's as good as I'm going to get on that. Jormungand? You've seen it. You can't pronounce it either. And in the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you get the Leviathan, or Wriggling Serpent, which is peppered throughout the books of Job, Amos, Psalms, and Isaiah, as well as the apocryphal book of Enoch. The Leviathan, though, is weirdly inconsistent throughout these texts. Sometimes it is portrayed as a benign, giant whale, other times as a world-rending monster. In Psalm 104, God is praised for having created it. But 30 chapters earlier, the psalmist praises him for having smashed its head into pieces, and for having fed those fleshy headpieces to his followers in the wilderness. And if that isn't a weird enough schism, four books later, in Isaiah, the Leviathan is called the Torturous Serpent, and it's prophesied to be killed only at the end of time. Reconciling the various depictions of the Leviathan has long been a matter of scholarship and apologetics for Jewish and Christian thinkers. But generally speaking, by medieval times, the consensus view was that whether she is a monstrous whale, serpent, or cephalopod, she definitely was out there still, somewhere in the deep, skull unsmashed by God. Other favorite beasts come to us from some of our other usual sources. The Greeks, from whose word the sea monster, we take the English cetacean, or whale. And the difference between a whale and a sea monster does appear to have given the Greeks a lot of trouble. Alexander was blockaded by a pod. Yes, a pod, that is the name for a group of whales, although a gam of whales will also do in a pinch. Alexander was blockaded by, let's say, a gam of whales, which he managed to chase off by blowing trumpets. The late Greek scholar Procopius held that a giant whale named Porphyrio spent 50 years destroying Byzantine boats around Constantinople until he accidentally beached himself and was descended upon by angry locals who hacked him into bits. But the term didn't only mean whales. Homer gives us a bevy of so-called cetaceans, including Scylla and Chartibus, the former of which he described as a six-headed dragon, one head off from Tiamat, the latter a mysterious animal that sucked in huge amounts of water, creating whirlpools that dragged ships under into its gaping maw. A common Greek adage for centuries to come was to be between Scylla and Chartibus, which comes down to contemporary times as between the devil and the deep blue sea. But our buddy Aristotle enshrined Scylla as a real creature in his Historia Animilium, along with teams of other various ship-sinking serpents. It's when you get Aristotle together with Alexander that the real fun comes, though. They write one another about islands that are actually giant turtles, giant crabs made out of glass, just an endless cavalcade of imaginative ridiculousness passed off as fact for generations to come. After all, if there was one source of information more trustworthy than history's greatest philosopher, it was history's greatest philosopher in tandem with history's greatest general. Boy, we got a long way to go to get back to 1925. So far, we've only looked at two types of sea monster, roughly. Those that come from religious myth, and those that come from exaggeration or misinterpretation of real creatures, like whales. The boundaries of those two kingdoms are pretty porous, though, as you might guess. Are all those seven-headed serpents really just mutations of a story created whole cloth, or might they refer to, say, an octopus? Sea serpents are pretty widespread throughout the world. Does that mean the earliest stories of sea serpents captured something in the imagination that caused them to spread and change? Or were those sea serpents real animals that caught in a game of telephone? Have you ever seen an oarfish? 
If not, go ahead. Take a quick peek. I'll wait. Just give it a Google. One word. O-A-R-F-I-S-H. Yeah, that is fairly terrifying, huh? How many steps do you suppose it would take to transform a story of reeling in one of those bad boys to one about it reeling you in instead? I'm going to say two? Maybe two. There are two other main ways that sea monster stories might have been born, though. Again, roughly. Actually, no, scratch that. Because I'm going to call bullshit on one of those mechanisms, and let me illustrate its bullshit by putting you in the story. Say you're a cartographer, circa 1500 or so. You're going about your business, drawing a map of northern Europe and the Atlantic around it. Everything's going swell. England goes there, and look, it's the Hebrides. France is over here, and there are some rivers on it. Boy, this is easy, you think. Right up until you hit a patch of sea around Iceland. Hmm, you grumble. What is around that bit of Iceland? You don't know. It's not in any of your reference documents. None of the fishermen you've talked to have anything to say about it. You can't pay for a charter, and anyway, you hate sailing. So, what are you going to do? Maybe you just leave it blank? Or make up some boundaries that you imagine couldn't be too wrong? I don't know. But here's what I'll bet you wouldn't do. Draw a fucking sea monster there. But you've heard this explanation, haven't you? You've been taught this, maybe even? It even comes with a phrase that's entered into popular parlance, Here be dragons. But that phrase, Hic sunt dracones, in Latin, only appears on two historical maps. Globes, actually. And on one of them, the Hunt Lennox globe, it's written around the east coast of Asia, near Komodo. And that is the one place you could have written Here be dragons on your middle school geography test and gotten partial credit. There are plenty of historical maps covered in monsters, particularly from the 1500s, but those monsters are very rarely confined to the mysterious edges. Take the Cartamarina, the most famous of monster maps. Drawn by Olus Magnus in 1539, it was the first map of the Nordic countries, and it is absolutely festooned with sea creatures. But those creatures aren't relegated to the margins. They're right off the coasts, around islands, around shipping channels. And they're keyed on the map, given names and brief explanations. There's the Norse Germangarned serpent, Christ, I thought my French was bad, which Magnus describes as possessing a foot and a half long beard. There are the Pristers, giant grimacing fish that sink ships by shooting spouts of water at them from their twin blowholes. And of course, there's the Kraken. There's nothing figurative about the monsters on the Cardamarina, and if there was any doubt about it, Olus Magnus removed it by further detailing the creatures in his book History of the Northern Peoples, which we talked about way back in our first episode, Why Do Birds Suddenly Disappear? So I don't buy the idea that monsters were invented to bury uncertainty or ignorance. I don't think they were metaphors or markers. I'm not authoritative on the subject, I'm just a podcaster, but to me it doesn't scan. The best counter-argument I've found to my dismissal is in the text of Plutarch's Parallel Lives from the first century, in which he says that geographers, quote, crowd the edges of their maps, parts of the world which they do not know about, adding notes in the margin to the effect that beyond lies nothing but sandy deserts full of wild beasts. If that's persuasive to you, cheers. But I said there was another category of sea monster, and we can see it if we take a close look at that Carta Marina again. In addition to those krakens and serpents and... Whales. Pristers were just whales. Sorry, I'm just realizing that. Uh, There's a bunch of other creatures that all have something in common. See if you can catch it. Sea pig? Sea cow? Sea rhino? You getting it? That's right. 
they all begin with the letter C. No, wait, no. They're all aquatic versions of land animals. And that's not a coincidence. Since before the time of Christ, there was a widely held belief common all around the world that every land animal, literally every land animal, had a water-dwelling doppelganger. Sometimes this idea is called marine counterparts, or perfect symmetry. We can take it back again to the psalmist, who implies that only the weasel is without a watery twin, or to Pliny the Elder, who, in his characteristic self-contradictory style, calls the notion vulgar, and noted that there are many more sea creatures than terrestrial ones, but still shrugged and said it, quote, may very possibly be true. The perfect symmetry theory lived on until the 18th century. Sir Thomas Brown's Pseudodoxia Epidemica, or Vulgar Errors, a book we've talked about before and will surely mention again, because this show is basically a modern extension of it, has a whole chapter devoted to shattering the asinine idea. A lot of these hypothetical marine counterparts are still with us today, though. Not just sea cows, but sea horses, sea lions, sea cucumbers. And some of the mythical creatures that fall into this category are not so obvious. You might have heard that mermaids have their origins with sailors mistaking manatees for aquatic peoples. And maybe that did happen. Probably not, but maybe. But mermaids far predate the discovery of manatees. Thousands of years before that, folks knew there had to be mermen and mermaids because there had to be a marine counterpart to us. So there we are, my four, but really three, categories. I think that most every sea monster can be divided into one, or sometimes two, or occasionally three, of these categories. But never four, because the fourth is bullshit. It's a pretty good theory, right? Don't you think? You don't have to be polite. I know it doesn't work. Because of one word. Plesiosaur. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the discovery of giant fossilized aquatic reptiles in the 19th century came a new explanation for sea monsters, new and old. That hydra, those kraken, the leviathan, maybe they were all real, in a sense, after all. Because maybe some of those plesiosaurs had survived, and maybe they're still out there. The most famous of these supposed living artifacts is the Loch Ness Monster, which gained notoriety through a picture of an upturned toy submarine in 1934. But Nessie was by no means the first reported possible plesiosaur of modern times, and at least one of her predecessors makes a far more convincing case. Which brings us, finally, back to Santa Cruz. There are reports of something hiding in Monterey Bay going back at least to the turn of the 20th century referred to somewhat affectionately as Bobo, or the Old Man of the Sea. The legends didn't seem at all plesiosaur-like. Instead, fishermen reported something more like a giant seal with a human face. Then, Charles Moore took a walk along his beach. It was the summer of 1925, nearly a decade before the infamous surgeon's photograph at Loch Ness. We don't have any record of Moore's own account of the day, but we might guess that he was lured by the smell. 
There aren't many things the Observer accounts agree upon, but the hideous odor of rotting death is one matter on which there is firm consensus. What Moore saw, or thought he saw, is a squishier thing to say, both literally and figuratively. There are numerous photographs of what was eventually termed Moore's Beach Monster, yet the recollections and observations of folk who saw the corpse vary immensely, and somehow the photographs don't do a lot to clear up the discrepancies. It's a real Yanni Laurel kind of problem, a reference which is sure to have lost all currency by the time this story is released. Remember Yanni and Laurel, guys? My sincerest wish for you is that you do not. Let's start with size. Depending on whom you believe, the creature was somewhere between 25 and 50 feet long. The photographs do very little to contend that range. A few accounts say it had legs, anywhere between four and ten of them, with one particularly vivid description claiming each foot possessed a number of ivory toenails. Others say it had a long tail, like that of a whale, although some split the difference and claim it had both tail and legs. The Santa Cruz News reported it to be covered in hair and feathers. For what it's worth, the photos don't seem to validate that, nor do they appear to show any legs. The area upon which there was most agreement was the head, which nearly every reporter and civilian described as duck-like, with a long bill. The pictures more or less back this up, although I'd say it's just as fitting to say it resembles a giant and somewhat smushed dolphin head. The neck, too, is relatively uncontroversial. Everyone who saw it described it as slender and very, very long. The Santa Cruz News estimated its length at seven feet, whereas Bernard Hoovelman the so-called father of cryptozoology, extended that to 30 feet. There's a blanket term for what Moore found on his beach that skeptics, scientists, and true believers can all basically agree on. Globster. Ivan Sanderson coined the term in 1962 in reference to a mysterious carcass that washed onto the shores of Tasmania. Informally, a globster is an aquatic organic mass that is difficult to identify because of decay and waterlogging. The Tasmanian Globster presented as a hairy lump of tissue, 20 feet long, with no eyes or mouth, and six soft, arm-like doohickeys. It took until 1981 to positively identify it as a whale. There have been many other mysterious flesh lumps over the years, in Chile in 2003, in St. Augustine, Florida in 1896, but other Globsters are less Rorschach-like. Take the carcass trawled up by the Japanese fishing boat Zuyo Maru in 1977. Nicknamed Nessie, it was about 30 feet long, with four large fins and long neck and tail. The fishermen thought it must be some sort of fantastic dinosaur or other unknown monster, but the captain, worried about spoilage of their haul, had it thrown over deck and back into the sea. Not before photos and drawings were taken, though. When those images hit the press, a plesiosaur panic hit Japan. But scientists soon put the plesiosaur theory to rest, because they'd seen this before. In 1808, another pseudo-plesiosaur washed up on the shores of Scotland and was taken by the Natural History Society of Edinburgh to be a new, living species of a giant monster. But the anatomists Everett Home and Professor John Goodsir eventually realized it was something still quite rare, yet less fantastical. A basking shark which because of its muscle and cartilage patterns has a coincidental tendency to become plesiosaur-like as it decays. That which was true of the Scottish Stronse beast was also true of the Zoyomaru's Nessie, decaying basking sharks both. 
But Moore's Beast was no basking shark. And it was far less globular than these examples, although apparently just globular enough to lead to all these divergent accounts. Luckily, a scientist showed up to put the matter right. Dr. E. L. Wallace, twice president of the Natural History Society of British Columbia, arrived not long after the discovery to perform a full beachside autopsy. My examination of the monster was quite thorough. I felt it in its mouth and found it had no teeth. Its head is large and its neck fully 20 feet long. The body is weak and the tail is only 3 feet in length from the end of the backbone. These facts do away with the whale theory, as the backbone of a whale is far larger than any bone in this animal. Again, its tail is too weak for an animal of the deep and does away with that last version. With a bill like it possesses, it must have lived on herbage. I would call it a type of plesiosaurus. With the positive identification of a living relic by a respected scientist in hand, the press went absolutely bananas. Wallace did try to caution them that the specimen could have been frozen millions of years ago and loosed from a glacier, not still living in the 20th century, but that was a caveat of little interest to the mobs of dino-watchers. It was only after the hysteria hit fever pitch that the California Academy of Sciences decided to take its own interest. They took possession of the skull and went about preparing and analyzing it. In short order, they came back with a sober and defeating conclusion. The skull belonged to a Baird's beaked whale, the largest living toothed whale in the world. The skull is, even now, on display at CAS in San Francisco. There's no doubt about it. But the plesiosaur phenom back in Santa Cruz was slow to dissipate. News of a beached whale was never going to play as loudly as the discovery of a Jurassic monster. And anyway, what about the long neck upon which every observer and even the photographs agreed? That's where the globster part of Moore's beach monster comes into play. The neck had broken up, somewhere either at or after death, and the blubber connecting the neck to the body became stretched and elongated by decay and tides. Some people who heard the correction wondered why they should take the word of some nameless San Francisco biologists who only ever saw a skull over that of a highly esteemed scientist like E.L. Wallace, who examined the whole body of the creature. Some people asked that then, and some even ask it now. There's a not small community of conspiracy theorists who take Wallace's side on the issue and consider CAS's analysis a cover-up. But here's the thing about the esteemed E.L. Wallace, twice president of the Natural History Society of British Columbia. He never existed. There are no records of any such president or even member of the Natural History Society. No records of any scientist by that name at all, or anyone even matching his description. There is a real mystery at the heart of the Moore's Beach Monster Saga. But it's not that of the identity of the creature. Rather, of the man who examined it. And man, I wish I could answer it for you. But no one knows. Perhaps there was a clever con man or merry prankster who happened upon the scene and decided to see what he could get away with. Or maybe he was a total fabrication of some yellow journalist pulled from thin air to sell newspapers. If someone asks, what was the Moore Beach Monster? We can answer simply and confidently, a beaked whale. But if they ask instead, who was E.L. Wallace? We must concoct a more poetic answer. 
something that gets to the uncertainty, the unknowable nature of the query, the fundamentally unchartable map of missing information. Who was E.L. Wallace? Here be dragons. From Chicago, Illinois, where in 1893, officers at Fort Sheridan spotted a 50-foot-long sea serpent that, quote, caused them to give up drink. This has been The Constant. Constant.